0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode two of season two. I'm Catherine Knowles and I'm going to be talking today to Roger Edwards. Hi Roger. Hi Catherine, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, thank you. How are you?
1: Oh, I
0: am fantastic.
1: Up here in Scotland, as you know, the lockdown is unlocking a little bit slower than it is in England, but I can finally go and sit outside my favorite cafe and have a cup of the best coffee in Edinburgh. So I'm actually quite excited.
0: That does sound really, really good. I was gonna say, I think a lot of people aren't necessarily dreaming of the the coffees at the moment. I think everyone's (laughs) been uh, in England seems to be dreaming of something else, but I uh, I do have to agree. I think that sounds absolutely amazing. I may try and uh, get out to my local coffee shop. At some point later so today everybody we are going to be talking about um, engaging clients things that we sort of I think uh, are good things to do some potential no no no's even and this year's protection review we we'll are also be chatting about Roger's experience pacing a claim for life insurance and um, a few years ago and unfortunately his father passed away so this is the practical protection podcast So Roger, tell me about how have things been for you then? I know obviously you're clearly excited about getting a coffee, and I know I've been seeing you on social media, looking forward to getting down to the harbour, seeing different things out and about. What's it been like?
1: Well, do you know what? Uh, As I said, in Scotland, the lockdown has has unlocked a a little slower than it has in England. Um, And and it's just just nice to be able to get back to doing some of those things that you just used to take for granted. Um, You know, a a lot of people who follow me on social media and Twitter know that I love to go down to Fisher-O Harbour, which is about four miles away from me down in in Musselburgh. And it's it's just a nice little harbour, you know, probably about 40 or 50 little sailing yachts and there's a cafe nearby and i just like to buy a coffee and have a wander around and i couldn't do that for like nearly nearly two months and just getting back to those little snippets of normality uh it's just great but then on the other side of the coin you know um, i do quite a lot of traveling um i've lived in edinburgh for 27 years coming up and a lot of the work that i do is down in england a bit like you having to um, travel from Filey to london quite often and that is the thing about lockdown that i've really enjoyed is not having to travel as much if not having to travel at all no no (laughs) sitting
0: shops (laughs) no,
1: no airport shops no airport security queues no hanging around in the sin bin waiting for a you know a slot to land um you know all of that i think the, the, the virus the crisis has proven that a lot of the meetings that we used to travel for can be done over zoom and and microsoft teams and, and that sort of thing and and I'm, I'm just thinking that i'm hoping that when things eventually do go back to some level of normality that we sort of learn from this and, and cut out some of those non-essential meetings and carry on doing things over video because it's good for us in terms of our health but it's also good for the environment as well
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think um, something that still stands out to me from one of the earliest episodes that we did uh, with Mike Adams from Purple was what he said about, you know, organizations. He's argued with organizations for years about the ability to put facilities in place for people to be able to work from home so that more people with disabilities are able to get into employment and different things like that. And he's always faced this barrier of people saying, you know, it's like, no, it's impossible for us to do that. And literally within the matter of days, the entire nation switched Almost the entire nation switched to working from home. And yeah. I really hope that this kind of, again, sort of similarly, sort of kickstarts a thing where we can maybe start to see much more doors opening for people who've maybe struggled to get into the workplace. You know, it could be that someone's got a disability, it could be, you know, single parents, anything like that. Um, same as you i just hope we sort of like keep some lessons from this and uh, it'd be nice to get back to some normality at the same point i'm sure there's plenty of people who would love to be back you know in the hustle bustle of London and everything but um but yeah it'd be nice if we can keep a bit of it
1: i, th- I think you you know you said that the subject of today's podcast was trust and, and and there's an element of trust here in this whole working from home thing i think before coronavirus the suggestion of working from home in in some companies and with certain management styles and I'm not picking on anybody here it's just it's just a fact in certain companies and certain management styles there wasn't that trust so we can't let people work from home because they'll abuse it they'll they'll just sit around drinking coffee or playing on their um, games or whatever it is but the reality is that most people would work from home perfectly um happily and it's that it's just that element of trust that wasn't there and then suddenly coronavirus comes along the crisis forces companies to do it because it, they have to and wow look it works it works so you know I, I i can remember many 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 years ago when when the when a phone was first put on everybody's desk i mean god that shows how long i've been around i was um, gonna say and, that and,
0: seems really strange to me and, so and, that there wouldn't have been phones <laughs> and, and the
1: you know you know that. The HR department, oh, we're a bit worried about this. People spend all their time on the phone to their friends. No, they won't. No, It's a management issue. You know, it. okay, if somebody does abuse it, then they get told off. But most people don't. And then, you know, when we all got email, it was the same thing. Oh, we can't let people have email. Can't let everybody have email because they will be emailing the friends. No, they won't. Oh, we can't let people have social media. It's the same thing as yeah. working from home. There's got to be the trust. And as soon as you overcome that trust hurdle, then it works. It Absolutely. works. It's always a management issue rather than a practical issue.
0: Absolutely. So last time, um, myself and Catherine Morgan took part in the Truth or Lie feature. And mm-hmm. so it's your job today to figure out which one was was telling the truth and which one was telling the lie. So I said that during lockdown, I've taken to learning origami. And Catherine said that she was once an extra in the film, the young Victoria. So we need to figure out which one you think is true.
1: Ooh, do you know what? I can, I can definitely see you doing origami. Um, I think it's something that the kids would love. Um, you know, I can see you creating one of those little, uh, like, unicorns out of, out of Blade <laughs> Runner, that sort of thing. But having, having, having listened to Catherine last week and seeing her photograph, I also, I also think it's highly plausible that she's been an extra in a film. So I'm actually going to go with that. I'm going to say that she was an extra in the, in the young Victoria and you haven't started Origami.
0: You are right. You Aww. are right. I'm, I'm clearly a terrible liar. I think that's what this is teaching me through all these episodes. Um, no, it's, it's actually Alan that took off origami. Ah. ah, he's. I'm going to share a picture um, at the end of the week. Um, he did a uh, Pikachu for our sons, and so one of is obsessed with Pokemon, and the other one's obsessed with unicorns. So when you were saying that, I was like, Oh, it's unicorns, yeah. <laughs> so we've got, um, yeah, and so he started that sort of right like towards the beginning of lockdown, and it quickly has been replaced by him painting miniatures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we seem to have gone around everything. He's done origami. I've been doing the flute, he's now painting miniatures.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's really good. Well, at least the children have got the origami animals to, exactly. to uh, look at so that, that that's good so it was only a half lie <laughs> yeah it's yeah, it only
0: a part lie so uh, what you obviously as you were saying just then you've been in the industry um, for a long long time you've worked obviously multiple marketing departments for insurers you've been the marketing director of bright gray and you're now an independent consultant i'm sure that a lot of people listening know who you are but can you just tell us a bit more about yourself so that people get to know you better
1: yeah, I mean I I have been a career marketing person, you know, way back when I was at university, I did a degree which was part marketing, it was part marketing part economics, uh, and my desire was always to be a marketing person. Um it it started off I guess as a bit of a coincidence that the first job that I got was in financial services. Um, and that was because there was a financial services firm looking for a marketing assistant. And and therefore, quite a lot of the companies that I've worked for over the years, albeit in a marketing role, have been financial services companies. And, and latterly, and the aforementioned Bright Grey, as you've mentioned, and just prior to that, Scottish Provident, were protection companies. So I have been quite heavily associated with the protection industry and and i you know one of my um one of my roles at the moment as a consultant is being marketing director for protection review so that that association with protection continues but my background has always been pure marketing and pure marketing is what i really enjoy doing and and so yeah occasionally i have worked with companies outside of financial services fitness industry that sort of thing travel uh, and i and ultimately the marketing um, techniques and the marketing strategies are the same across all industries so it's actually quite nice to apply them um but i think that f- financial services has a unique problem that i've always had a an interest in trying to solve and and it's almost become an obsession for me over the last 25 years and that is that it's a complicated industry and 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 I just don't like complicated products complicated language complicated processes we know customers don't like complexity we know that complexity enrages customers and it's always been my thought that customers will be engaged by simplicity but simplicity is really hard. And the, and because simplicity is hard, that's why everything's so complicated, because it's hard for people to make it simple. So a lot of the work that I've done over the last 25 years or so has been trying to bring simplicity to the protection industry. In very, I mean, I was involved quite heavily in the ABI standardization of, of critical illness. But it is still a complicated industry and, and we still use complicated language. So it's definitely, definitely an ongoing, an ongoing fight. But, you know, over the last, what would you say, Catherine, decade, I think we're making remarkable strides forward. You know, the language we use in protection is a lot easier to understand. Yeah. The documentation is easier to read. You know, we've we've done so much more to engage the public through various, you know, campaigns like seven families, stuff that protection reviews doing stuff that product providers are doing and, and, and those people like you who've really focused on social media and, and your quirky campaigns, I think we're finally starting to do some really engaging stuff, but we need to do more.
0: Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I think it's definitely getting better, especially over the last few years, but I mean, I'm certainly not going to have a, a go at any kind of person in compliance at all because I'm the compliance person for <laughs> for, for Cura. Um, but, you know, I think it, there is that kind of historical thing of, you know, compliance being very scared, you know, financial promotions being very scared about what could be interpreted wrongly by certain things. And I think, there's been that fear of needing to use like this really sort of specific, um, a really technical language so that there's no room for kind of misinterpretation. Mm. But then there is that thing as well, though, obviously from some of the training and things that I've been doing is the fact that is, I think believe the average reading age in the UK is about the age of a nine-year-old. Right. And, you know, obviously I've, I've got an almost nine-year-old. And <laughs> um, so I can see his level of reading and compared. And you sort of think, you know, if he did read these documents, you know, he'd be able to follow probably quite a lot of it, um, you know, be able to follow us, he'd be able to sound the words and everything like that and be able to speak them. But his actual understanding of what that means wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be there. Yeah. So I do think there is still that need for us. I think there's been significant work done in it. Um, And I think, you know, sometimes just looking a little bit into thinking the general insurance side of things where they have what's known as their IPID documents, where it's like, this is what it does cover in big green tick boxes. Mm -hmm. And what it doesn't cover in big red crosses. That's quite a a good thing, I think, to Mm -hmm. sort of like really make things visually much more appealing. But as you say, um, when you were saying earlier, that we are focusing on trust. In this kind of um, episode, and one of the biggest things for me that I think that the insurance industry faces is trust. Because if you, if everybody believed what we say in the insurance industry about the statistics, about what these policies actually cover for you know people for, and everything like that, is assuming that people didn't really have, you know, there wasn't really a um, a concern of the budget that they had to be able to pay for these insurances, to me, a significantly higher amount of people would be engaging with protection insurance mm-hmm. if they believed that it does what we say it does. And obviously we've got incredible statistics, you know, and we're now seeing incredible case studies as well. But, you know, when we are seeing things in lockdown at the moment and, and sorry, looking at it from the industry point of view for a second. So in lockdown, we're seeing that there's been some really quite, um, I can't think of any other way to say this is going to sound so tough, a bit shady <laughs> practices <laughs> from, um, from some, some lead generators, not all from some. And, you know, we're hearing reports of firms cold calling people and saying that, you know, you've got life insurance at this company. You do realize that doesn't cover you. If you die from coronavirus. you need to take out insurance with us. You know, really? I mean that situation, really unscrupulous um, business practices. I mean, if, what are your thoughts on things like that? I mean, I'm assuming that they are not helping the way that our industry is perceived.
1: I think the biggest problem we have in protection always has been that the perception that people have from about us is so much different from the reality. And and let, let's be honest, you know, way back, things weren't great. You know, the number of claims that we did pay out 20 years ago was probably... You know, in the in the seventies and eighties percents, it wasn't as high as the very high nineties that we're seeing today. So the industry did have an issue. Um, you know, I can remember there was something on, on Watchdog pretty much every week, uh, where a company had declined a claim and watchdog had a go at them and then they ended up paying i even went on the itv version of watchdog back in the year 2000 to to dig scottish provident out of a hole that it had dug for itself so so i think that the industry did have a problem and that created this massive massive perception that people still have today that we decline claims and and unfortunately you've got these unscrupulous shady as you say businesses that are making these phone calls saying hey do you realize that this company won't pay out if you die of covid well that's just it's just a scam it's as bad as those people who ring you up and say we believe you've been in a car accident we'll get you compensation the problem is is that it's just another you know it's just another thing that reinforces the bad perception that people have of the industry and I guess one of the other things that we you know we now live in this world where we we've got social media we've got Facebook you've know, got Twitter everything and the, these become almost like echo chambers mm. for what we believe and most people suffer from something called confirmation bias And what confirmation bias means is that you will always go and look for stuff that supports your viewpoint. So if you believe that the insurance industry is is a scam or it won't pay claims, you can go onto Twitter and you can find evidence to prove it. You can go onto the Daily Mail website and find stories to prove it and old episodes of Watchdog. It's all there to reinforce your viewpoint what a lot of people don't do and what we probably all should do is always try to find evidence of the contrary but we can you know we we get it confirmed and you know these people these these shady dealer firms are not helping the situation now we have as an industry as we've said before we've we're publishing these claim statistics every year they're in the high 90s and the stories that go with them you know the the seven family stories were powerful the, the the case studies that product providers put out there are powerful mm-hmm. but we need to do more of that we need to tell more of the stories because at the moment people with confirmation bias find it easier to find the negative evidence to back up their viewpoint they're not being presented with enough contrary evidence more so the more positive stuff that we can put out and continue to p- pay the claims and continue to you know to knock down these companies that are nothing more than scam um scam companies the more positive stuff we can get out there so that people will start to see the opposite side but it, but it, this isn't going to happen overnight you know we've been doing this for many many years now and it has started very gradually to turn the tide i think i can't remember the exact stats but i think that you know maybe 10 years ago the perception that people had was that we only pay 34% of claims i'm sure there was a stat that was was along those lines as mm-hmm. opposed to the 80 90% that it is and recently i've seen that that figure's got a lot better it's probably still in the 50s and early 60s so there's still a big gap But we're getting there, but we've still got a long way to go. So we just need to keep pushing out the positive stuff so that it eventually overtakes the negative stuff that's out there and people start to see more of the positive stuff and less of the negative stuff.
0: I think it comes down to as well, doesn't it, that it's easier, I think, for any of us, and, I, and I've i been done it in the past as well, it's easy to go on and complain when something's not going right and not necessarily to go on and praise when something's gone well. Um, you know, you don't automatically, if something's gone really well, you don't think, oh, that was such a lovely delivery, I'm going to go on Twitter and tell everybody about it. But if something goes wrong, you're just like, right, I'm going to go on Twitter, I'm going to tag that company, and they're going to hear my very they're going to hear my grumbling through my tweet. You know, it's it's very much what we all tend to do. I mean, what is your thought as well? So sort of like, you, know, you mentioned the social media then. So one of the things that, you know, I think we have to be careful of in our industry is in a sense, you know, we've already, we, we know that there's some people in the public who are potentially kind of bad-mouthing the insurance sector, you know, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes possibly because they've not understood something the way that it, maybe something should have been explained more, explained more clearly to them. And... Um, and what is your thoughts in regards to what we do as like as advisors or insurers or different things when we are seeing, you know, maybe these negative things from people in the public? I know myself, if I see something too negative, then I do feel a bit cautious about getting involved because I don't want to get involved in any kind of like a Twitter spat. or be told that I'm just another insurer out for everybody's, obviously I'm not an insurer, but an advisor out for somebody's money or different things like that. Um And I'm also cautious as well if I see other, if I see something that I think is is in a sense a dodgy advertisement or something, Mm -hmm. what I tend to do is I know there's someone very specifically at AIG that I sort of, I make her aware of it because they're really investigating these things at the moment. That's Kelly Phillips um, at AIG. And, um, you know, she's sort of like gathering all this information together and they're really sort of like trying to get on top of it. Um, but then I see others who maybe really call out these other companies and like they'll share it and they'll say different things, which kind of then shows a bit of infighting within our industry. Mm. Um, so kind of what do you think in a sense how can we kind of tackle this a bit more
1: yeah it's a difficult one isn't it because you know your natural instinct is you want to call out something that you feel is is clearly wrong i think one of the big problems with with social media is it's so polarizing um you know again there's been you know over the last year we've had lots of political stuff going on so we had brexit there was the general election um and in Scotland, we had the independence referendum a few years ago. And the problem is, is that people's views are usually so polarised on social media that it is totally impossible to change their minds. Mm. And, and and by trying to change their minds on social media, it can often descend into, you know, sometimes quite, quite uh, bitter uh, conversations. So my view has always been, you know, even if you desperately want to say something and let's, you know, during the election campaign, I got drawn into, nearly drawn into more conversations about politics than I've ever done in my life. I mean, I've, yeah. I've always tried to avoid politics because I know that it can be so polarizing, but even I was feeling so cross that I was st- failing myself getting sucked into it. And I, and I just don't think that social media is, is a good environment for that polarizing chat so my view is that we've just still effectively go back to what i said before we've got to continue to put out the positive stuff and uh, rather than directly um, going after people who may be posting negative stuff or at least leave it to a, a few individuals who've decided that they want to take on the role you mentioned the lady from AIG that is a role that they have decided to take on and that's fine i think that for the for the most of us it just doesn't it, it almost reinforces that confirmation bias to a certain extent because we're trying to fight one corner and other people mm-hmm. are trying to fight the other and they'll believe what they believe and and we believe what we believe what we need to do is to get more positive stuff out there so more case studies more claim statistics more real life human stories about how the industry's helped people so that there is more of that stuff out there and we can perhaps point that out to people you know you may think the industry is really bad but did you read this positive positive story in the in the telegraph or whatever it is rather than just getting into into arguments that we can't win so uh, to me it's putting out positive messages and and, and again you know we, we we learn a few things from the politicians even if we might hate it. you know get brexit done was an extremely clever statement that got itself lodged in everybody's head whether you agreed with it or not it was a three three word statement that got into people's head it's almost like an advertising campaign like for mash get smash isn't it or yeah. ron seal does whatever it says on the tin it was a strap line that got into people's heads maybe the protection industry needs to do more of that sort of thing you know
0: possibly i i've got it stuck in my head now we pay claims, <laughs> we, pay claims yeah. we pay claims um i think you know it's there's so many things as well, though, you know, where we started saying about trust, and I think, you know, it's, it's, we have to be fair to say as well that a lot of people do trust the insurances, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's so many well, millions of people who do have different insurances out. And, um, you know, there's certainly, you know, I think there's certain insurance products that maybe do have a lower claims success rate um, and different things like that. And people are affected by that. I don't think people see protection insurance on its own. I think, as we always say, you know, Kind of insurance is probably just lumped in general into banking and finance, and whatever people's opinions are of their local bank, you know, will translate to probably the insurance world and vice versa. But I think another thing that has obviously started to develop quite a bit is that obviously we are producing incredible claim statistics and we have done for quite a few years. And it seems now as if like the general media is probably noticing that. And I don't think that there's necessarily as many of these negative stories about, you know, oh, you know, this is going to be, um, this has happened, this person's not paid a claim, they're terrible. And we're now seeing the stories more to do with, well, that insurer's awful because this person is overweight and they've declined them insurance. Mm. And, you know, there was the other one where it was quite specific as well, where someone had, had depression and they were declined insurance by an insurer. And it's it feels more like it's the, in a sense, the access to insurance side of things that is where this trust is starting to sort of like move towards. And I know it's quite hard as well because, you know, there are times where obviously at Cure we have some, and I'm not meaning to sound sort of like really, you know, sorry, I'm going to try and be modest a bit, but you know, we have some incredible, incredible stories where we have helped people with health conditions to get insurance when they were told everywhere, absolutely everywhere else there was no chance. and. You know, sometimes you want to try and get that out there. But I know from trying to engage, you know, different people and different journalists and that, that um, the positive stories aren't necessarily what's wanted. Because, you know, the the thing that's said is that, well, we're not free PR and it's just the case of, well, you know, that's not the, well, certainly for me, it's not the intention to have free PR. It's to get messages out there, which is why I do my videos and different things. And I, you know, obviously specifically go and engage with charities as well to, to educate what's available. So it is really hard to get that message out there anyway, isn't it?
1: It is. And, you know, you you absolutely like the media, like. Negative stories. I mean, you know, that's why they p- publish the coronavirus death statistics every day with glee when they go up, um, and you know, all the, you know, it, it, on the one hand they're saying, oh, it's about time Boris lifted the restrictions because everybody's fed up of being inside, blah blah blah. So when he does um, lift the restrictions, all we see are photographs all over the front page of the Daily Mail or and the other newspapers with pictures of people crowding out Soho and then the the papers are saying look at this this is appalling we're going to have a Mm. second wave how could the politicians have been so stupid Uh, and and, and yes they're they're always looking for those those negative stories and, and that's what's unfortunate that's what sells that's what sells newspapers again I just keep coming back to the fact that we've got to keep putting out the positive stories um not maybe not necessarily through the news media but through our own initiatives like what you're doing with your videos and that sort of thing because people will watch them you know a lot of people get their news from youtube or from twitter now again we've already said that some of these social media platforms can be echo chambers, but if we, again, if we flood it with more positive stuff, then I'm hoping that, you know, eventually that positive stuff will prevail. The other difficulty, as you've said here with, if people start to have a look at the underwriting side of it, it's a difficult one to win. I I can remember back now, I can't remember how long, how many years ago it was. I was still at bright gray when we, when we introduced, um, flat rates for men and women for life insurance and critical illness we were no longer allowed to charge different rates for women and different rates for men because that was deemed to be discriminatory nearly uh, tripped over that word there and i remember at the time thinking you know how far could this go because somebody is bound to say well now we've now we've eliminated the the um, sex discrimination. What about ageism? You know, it's unfair to charge an 80 year old more than it is a, to charge a 20 year old for life insurance. Now, when you look at that, that is positively stupid, isn't it? Because the mortality rate for somebody in the 80s is sadly a lot higher than it is for somebody in their 20s. But it isn't beyond the realms of possibility either that one day somebody might say no i'm sorry it's discriminatory therefore you've got to move to flat age pricing now that would kill the industry because can you imagine how expensive the rates would get so so we've got to tread we've got to tread a, a careful path here and the media have got some responsibility we can't start to create the impression that underwriting is a discriminatory thing it's it's risk assessment and it's your risk assessment based upon facts that can be backed up by data and then you go oh well yeah but the, the 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 male female rates was backed up by data as well but you know we we've got to put ourselves into a into a position where we can explain what's happening is about is about risk and it isn't about discrimination but it's a very fine line it's a very fine line and again maybe that that's where you need to put a bit of focus into coming up with some simple messages simple to understand messages and visual ones like you were saying before green ticks and red crosses how could we make these risk assessment practices more engaging so that people can understand them so that they don't feel as if they're being discriminated against if something happens
0: going on from that so it fits quite nicely really so what would be your idea so a big thing for me is thinking like especially with the, the nat- latest trend by the media to look at like kind of the underwriting side of things and where there's this kind of barriers to access to insurance is that idea of the signposting which obviously mm-hmm. there's many of us in the industry that are trying to get this as you know just like at cure we signpost out for mortgages and pensions and different things like that that we're sort of saying that there needs to be much more of this kind of similar kind of you know coming back to protection advisors like ourselves to sort of say, right, if you need help, you know, we are here as well. Mm. So when we're sort of like looking at that within our industry, and I suppose also as well into the public, what are your big sort of engagement do's? What do you think you know, if you were going to start looking at a marketing campaign, and I'm sure that I'm completely doing this wrong, and I don't mean it to seem like you can explain what you were doing in a marketing campaign in a couple of minutes, but you know, what would be your first approach? What would you be saying, right, if we're going to do this, we really want to focus on this, and we really want to focus on that?
1: I always come back to three rules when it comes to engagement with marketing and and, and i'm just going to focus on the communication bit here because we haven't really got time to talk about product development and, and research and that sort of thing but my three rules have always been first of all rule number one is assume your customer or client knows nothing you know they don't know what tpd is they don't know what accelerated criticalness versus standalone criticalness they don't even know what underwriting is Yet we all talk about underwriting as if it's common language. Every single industry has its own language. It's almost like, you know, you go to France, you have to learn French. If you start looking at insurance, you've got to learn insurance. We've got to find a way of communicating these product names, processes and things in a way which assumes zero level of knowledge now okay yes you are going to find some people who may think you're uh, teaching granny to suck eggs or there's an element of being a bit patronizing but you've got to remember that most people don't you know you said it to yourself earlier can you explain it to a seven-year-old i'm pretty sure that way back at bright gray we even considered having a panel of kids to review the product literature because we wanted it to be understood by, by seven-year-olds. So assume the client knows nothing. And then if you assume they know nothing, then no question that they can ask can ever be too simple. You know, what is life assurance is a perfectly legitimate question. And can you answer that in an in a easy-to-understand way? The second is you've got to talk in the language of the customer. And, and as an industry, we don't talk in the language of the customer that often and and, and again i i i say you know, you go to the pub if you're allowed to go to the pub of course you go to the pub um you'll say to somebody um catherine i'll get us a couple of pints and you'll say yeah thanks roger what i wouldn't do is go and say catherine i shall go to the bar and procure for us Two pints of fermented hops in liquid served in a cylindrical clear vessel of fused silicon, which I shall then bring back to this table and put it in front of you so that we can imbibe it for 34 minutes and 25 seconds I and would engage ourselves that. in comp- you know you that you'd look at me and think Roger what are you doing
0: no, i was going to say you i would talk- love that anyone who knows me knows i would love that <laughs> i'd be like i'd be like absolutely let's do this all night <laughs> oh you
1: know but but that's but to a certain extent that's what we do we we talk in passive language we use passive sentences rather than active sentences we use long paragraphs with big words and we think it's professional uh no talk in the language of the customer most people don't and then the third one is don't use try not to use the industry jargon Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean it, it's okay to a certain extent, you know, if it's B2B, so you're a protection provider talking to a financial advisor, then you would expect them to know what TPD was and accelerated critical illness and standalone critical illness. So I can I can sort of see it a little bit B2B. But when you're talking directly to the customer, you know, let's not talk about TPD, P T D, A kick, SA kick, you know, ABI, PHI income protection ip it just gets it just gets it's it's gobbledygook so those are the three rules assume they know nothing talk in their language and don't use the industry's jargon
0: i think that's the really really good points to make and it's, it's the kind of thing of that it, it's when you say it like that in a sense it sounds so simple and it really does sound so simple but then when you actually start to try and apply it, mm-hmm. it that's i think where it comes a bit harder because then that kind of sort of as it well as I say from my own compliance mind it kind of like comes in a little bit nagging at times like oh well if you say it like that could that be misconstrued have you completely covered everything that you need to cover there to say what it isn't going to cover and and I think sometimes we kind of need to just also trust that people we'll just understand what we're on about if we are sort of like straightforward from the sense of them being able to understand it but also not just assume that there's going to be some kind of loophole that they're going to be trying to to look for i mean obviously some people may do but you know not everybody will but i think again just carrying on this theme of trust and sort of like going back a little bit towards the claims so we've got kind of this thing of saying well people don't really trust an insurance because they don't trust the claim's going to pay out uh, when the insurer says it will. But then there's also people who have engaged and then they have trusted that a claim will pay out, but then the trust is then lost when a claim is being made. It's sort of like the insurer doesn't behave sort of like the way that they necessarily expected, or in a supportive manner. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've got a story that sort of goes very much with this. So do you mind sharing it with us, please?
1: Yeah now this is this is um 3 years ago now my my father died um now obviously difficult time and when i was going through his stuff um he came, we i came across quite a lot of life insurance policies taken out between something like 1977 and about 1985 mm. there was about there was about 20 policies all told most of them were sort of um non-profit whole of life plans a mm. couple of endowments all the sum assureds were quite low you know 2 or 3000 pounds mm. each so you know not big policies but it was a real nightmare actually for various reasons trying to get the claims paid on these things first the first issue was that quite a lot of the companies that he'd taken the policies out with d- didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So I had to actually go and find which back book company uh, had bought up that particular book of, of business. So that was the first hoop to get through. And, and, and again, it's it, it's not actually, you can have a guess. And, and because I worked in the industry, I, I knew it might, might have been um, a certain backbook book company but you know the man on the street isn't going to know that so that was the first difficult thing <laughs> then the second one was actually making the claims so i had 20 policies some with the same company some with with others so you know you've got to go through the usual sitting on the phone phoning them up and then you'll get that hold music that says we are experiencing an unprecedented number of calls so it's going to take longer and every single time you phone an insurance company that message comes up every single time so if that is always the case then why don't you get more people on the phone sorry a bit of a rant there but they always seem to play that message and then i get the the customer service agent coming on. Now, it, some of them were really quite kind and quite empathetic. Some of them, in fairness, sounded as if they were a bit bored, didn't really want to be there. Um And and the usual, con- the, the, one of the conversations went something like, okay, can you give me a policy number? So I said something like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, X. Mm. Um, then dad's date of birth. So I told them. Uh And then they said, can you tell me his address now well i said well the problem is the policy that i've got here the policy document doesn't have his address on it and -hmm. he took this out in 1977 and between now and 1970 and and today Mm -hmm. 2017 whenever it was he's lived in eight different houses eight different addresses so i don't know which address you have on your system Mm -hmm. so the the guy says well unfortunately we've got to protect against fraud so you'll have to give me one of the addresses but if you if you give me the wrong one then i'm going to get locked out of my system and that's to protect you from potential fraud so i thought well i've got a one in eight chance so okay so i guessed it got it wrong Mm. so that particular agent had been locked out of his system now now i understand it's to protect fraud that's fine They're, they're trying to avoid phishing and that sort of thing Uh, but he says, no, I I can't deal with you anymore. So I said, well, Mm. what's my alternatives? Well, you'll have to phone back again. And I said, well, are you telling me that I'll have to phone back and potentially phone back seven times until I get the address, right? He says, well, and and seven different agents will get locked out if you do it. So then I said, well, can I email you all the addresses? No, we don't accept emails. We only accept written letters sent by snail mail. Mm. Okay. Well, that's, that's not very, Modern, more legitimate
0: it? than an email yeah. i mean it's you know. i don't get
1: um, that <laughs> and so so in the end i had to write them a snail mail letter which you know went through the system uh quite a lot of these companies have got kpis where they you know they have a five-day turnaround for a, a process um so and, and what that seems to me in a lot of these back book case businesses is that five days means that it will let it sit there for five days before they actually do anything with it rather than they've got to turn it around in five days um so so, so that i had to go through that almost with every single policy and you start to you know i start to get cross and i'm upset as well mm. um you had to send it copies of the death certificate to all of them uh, one of the companies lost the first pack that I sent through um, so I had to send another pack through and then of course when they sent me the pack back they sent me both back so they obviously did get the and it, and you just think I, you know I you can't really criticize them for these processes because the processes are designed to help people but I couldn't help thinking I work in this industry or have worked in this industry for a long time and it's driving me nuts imagine what it would have been like if it was my mother Mm. doing this you know and and she's in her 80s she doesn't understand those sorts of questions or why that agent was going to be locked out of his system it just feels as if it's an insurance company being bad and you know i couldn't help thinking that again You're not communicating the process simply enough for people to understand. And it's adding to that perception that it's hard to deal with you.
0: And as if they're putting barriers in place, but like you say, it's not necessarily that there are barriers in place. It's just the processes within the systems Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they're having to deal with. But, you know, something really stands out for me there is like you were saying about obviously having to send it in the post. I don't understand this concept, you know, still that a, so a letter coming in the post is more legitimate than an email that just completely baffles me Mm -hmm. um and it i find it the same for when we're looking at um direct debit mandates sometimes where sometimes you know they still need the wet signatures trust forms that still have to be done by paper Mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. you know there's certain parts of it that just you know obviously just need some modernization and that but you, sort of, you see it sometimes with one insurer where they have modernized and then it frustrates you with other ones because you're just like why can't you just update your systems yeah. like like, number, like x over there um but no i mean obviously as you say you know you're in the industry and for for many other people and if it have been you know how difficult it could have been and eventually how they may have just actually given up trying to actually get the claim through and again it would then just feed into that negative well two things it would feed into the negativity still towards their industry but more importantly it means that that person that really needs financial support at that time who rightly deserves it because their their family member has been paying for the insurance isn't getting the support that the insurer has promised to provide.
1: Mm, mm.
0: So, I mean, hopefully we're tackling that. So one thing that obviously Alan, my husband, for anybody who doesn't realize, um, Alan Knowles, he is the chair of the uh, PDG. And something that they've had that a lot of insurers have been signing up for is the claims charter. So it's always worthwhile if somebody is supporting a client who is going through a claim to establish if that insurer is part of this um, pledge with the PDG. And I won't go through all of it. You can see it on the Protection Distributors Group website. Um, but very, very briefly, um, it sort of covers some, sort of, I think it's six key things. Yeah, six key things, uh, where basically it means that, you know, an insurer um, to be able to say that they have this kind of approval from the PDG, that they must have a dedicated claims team available with some kind of a phone-based claims process so that the person can actually have a dedicated person that they speak to and you know that paperwork is kept to an absolute minimum that digital sources are provided absolutely everywhere can that nobody can turn be turned away from a claim um by the from the insurer unless that person is from the claims team. So it must be a member of the claims team that contacts them to say if a claim has or hasn't been approved. Um, that they have to be contacted with regular updates at least every two weeks, unless there's another kind of amount um, agreed at another time. Obviously, sometimes, I know we've had a claim go through a cure once that took a significantly long period of time because the, um, there were suspicious circumstances around the death and the coroner wouldn't actually release the report. So, you know, in some instances, it can actually take quite a bit of time for for these to go um, forward. Um, That um, obviously as well, that they have to have a named contact, then they will be the contact that contacts them every couple of weeks that um, their intermediaries, like like ourselves, if we've been involved in setting up the policy, that we are notified of a claim so that we can provide support, but also so that we can update our systems as well, so that we can, one, contact the client, uh, obviously their spouse or their kin, just to sort of say anything we can do to help, we can follow this up, but also so we can update our systems so that we don't contact them, you know, we don't unfortunately, have that instance where maybe contact a widow or widower in a few months time and say how are you both doing mm. and then to obviously find out that very sad situation and it's that's just not nice for anybody involved obviously um that they need to proactively offer um the funeral payment pledge as well which is another part of the pdg thing and that once a claim is improved that the payment is received within 20 70, sorry 72 hours um, so there are quite a few things there that um, are really important, I think, for an advisor to be aware of, just to sort of keep that in the back of their mind, that if a claim is happening, and also I'm assuming that in an as claims department, um, that the, the claims team would know if they're part of the PTG, um thing, but just always to be conscious that that kind of pledge is there, and if the if company that they're working for has pledged to do that, that those processes are followed. So, sorry starting to round up the episode a little bit uh this is obviously going to be launched in a few days time when protect x is going to be going live so can you tell everybody about protect x which will be happening in a sense right now
1: yeah protect x is on the 9th of july which is the day you're sending this podcast out as well now protect x is protection reviews online mini conference Obviously, because of the coronavirus crisis, we had to postpone the full protection review conference the protection review conference would have been today 9th of july it would have been at the landmark hotel in london as always and it would have been the conference during the day and the dinner and awards in the evening now obviously we had to postpone that until december and we're hoping that we can go ahead with that in december but what we've done this year for the main conference was we changed the afternoon session into this thing we call Protect X. And the idea we we totally ripped it off from TEDx, you know, the TEDx talks where people stand up and make quite short, really quite snappy, quite controversial speeches. So that was the intention for the main conference, and we realised that once we'd postponed the main conference, that that format would really work in an online environment because each speech, and there was going to be seven of them, was always gonna was only going to last for seven minutes. So we're doing ProtectX today. We've got those seven speakers talking for seven minutes about a really, you know, controversial. Hard hitting topic, one of which is the uh the lead generators um in the protection industry that you've already mentioned today, Catherine. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say about that. And then after we've done the uh the the seven speeches, we then have a panel debate with five different people. Alan Knowles is one of the the panel debaters, and we'll talk about their reactions to the topics and issues that came up in that those seven speeches. So the whole thing only lasts for an hour and a half. Um, it's going out. live on youtube and facebook the protection review from youtube and facebook groups and and obviously you'll be able to watch it later as a replay Um, we're hoping it's going to be successful it's a great format when we get to december we'll have another seven speakers doing it in the live environment because we think that the, the the format works well at a proper conference but of course we'll have to find another seven speakers to do that which is fine because i think about 27 people applied to be in the original oh, seven wow. so we've got plenty of people to choose from so i think the format's got uh, got a got legs. so really excited about uh protect quite a lot of work has gone into that so um whether you're listening listening to this before ProtectX or whether you're listening to this after ProtectX, would be really interesting to get your feedback and let us know what you thought of it.
0: Absolutely, I have to say as well though you just remind me obviously the one thing I think that sorry, really got me about lockdown is the fact that I won't be the landmark hotel Mm. staying over this Mm. week. And I won't be getting that hot stone massage. And that (laughs) is really, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel very, very sad now (laughs) for, for a few hours. Um, but also, um, you know, obviously, thank you very much for, for, for doing this and for speaking to me and, uh, and for us chatting through everything and your thoughts on trust and insurance.
1: Not at all. It's been a great chat. I think we've covered a lot of ground today, Catherine.
0: We have done. I think we could chat for a very, very long time about it as well. So <laughs> we're now to the truth and lie feature. Okay, everybody. So see what you'll be able to um, figure out which one of us. And just saying, obviously, I'm clearly a very bad liar. As I think <laughs> every single time that I do this. So Which is obviously
1: I, a double bluff. Oh, this is week, it? This, this <laughs> would definitely gonna be telling the truth, aren't you? <laughs> Ooh,
0: you never know. <laughs> so mine this week is to say that I have read a new book every week during lockdown.
1: And mine, Catherine, is that I have got my bike back. Uh which was uh for a for a while because of the um lockdown, had been up in Aberdeen with my son. Now I've got it back, and I've been out every day doing some cycling so i'm getting fit again
0: brilliant well thank you everybody for listening and thank you roger for joining me it's been lovely to speak um to you about everything i'm going to be back in about two weeks time chatting with somebody about cancer and insurance and i hope that you're interested in hearing about that if you'd like a reminder of the next episode please drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk and don't forget as well that you can now get your cpd certificates for listening to the podcast thank you very much roger
1: great to be here Catherine. thanks very much for having me see you soon
0: thank you bye